please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, in all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he said, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and we henceforth be no more children, to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, and the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, being past feeling and given themselves over unto lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus that she put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that she put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. 
Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. When I was young, my my older brother, but not too much older than me, um, my older brother was a big Star Trek fan. So, of course, um, the, the character of Mr. Spock is world famous, originally played by Leonard Nimoy. Uh, while we were young, uh, my brother discovered that Leonard Nimoy not only made uh, the Star Trek show, but he was involved in the production of another, a show called In Search Of. We, we as little people, enjoyed watching this very much. It was, in some ways, um, a mystery show, in some other ways, an adventure and exploration quest. So you would have these, these mysterious things, these legendary things, like the Bigfoot. The Loch Ness Monster, aliens, whatever. Well, the show would take you on these adventures. You would go with Leonard Nimoy and his explorers on um, adventures, questing to find these mysterious things. At the end of the day, as might well expect. They never really found anything. You would go on this adventure to a faraway land seeking mysterious things and maybe they would find um, a depression in some mud that they hope might be um, a uh, footprint or uh, they'd listen to some, some tales from people who had seeing a monster rising out of the lake or some such thing. But they quested. They quested hard. They quested long. And they never really did find anything. I have found that the search for church unity it has proven equally elusive. This is a matter that has been pressing upon my mind for a handful of years. It, it has been a, a subject of interest for me for my whole Christian life, but I have in the past handful of years really felt myself pressed by this, um, both for what you might say doctrinal reasons as well as uh, practical reasons. And as I have as I have labored to come to some just apprehensions of what the Bible teaches concerning these things, so that I might know how to act, so that I might know how to live, as I struggled to come to those just apprehensions, it began to occur to me, do I even really know what it is that I am looking for? Do I know where to look for it and how to find it and so on. Do I even know what I'm talking about? I, I started my explorations and realized pretty early on that I was not altogether clear about the goal. What is it that I'm seeking? So questions be, began to arise. Well, what, what do we mean by unity? Is it just being sweet and kind to one another? I do think that that's a very popular definition of church unity. And I greatly value those things. 
is. But is that all that the Bible has to teach about it? Or is there something more? And then I began to think about unity and its relationship to the church in its various aspects. Are we, are we considering exactly the same thing when we talk about the unity of the invisible church or the unity of the visible church or even the unity of a particular church? In its broadest conception, ultimately, we might very well have the same thing in view. And yet at the same time, practical considerations on each of those levels will certainly vary. So, it began to occur to me that there is some complexity to this issue. And there are things about our current context that hinder us in rightly conceptualizing and seeking church unity. And this will be evident to you all. Denominationalism has become the norm. I do not believe that it can ever become the ethical, biblical standard norm in that sense. But it has become the norm with respect to frequency. As a matter of fact, it, it feels very difficult to escape from it. So, for example, you, you find the uh, almost paradoxical non-denominational denomination or something like that. How do you escape? If you recognize there's something wrong with denominationalism, how do you escape from it without creating just another denomination? Something of a puzzle, to be sure. So, um, in taking these things up in a series of sermons, hopefully right off the bat, it will be necessary to go slowly, to go line upon line and precept upon precept, to start with things that are relatively simple and straightforward, things that um, most Bible believers will um, agree upon. And then starting with those principles, begin to work our way from those principles to more difficult issues. This will require patience, reflection, but I, I do hope that our love for, for both our, our blessed head as well as for the bride of Christ, I hope that that love will move us to put forward the requisite effort and whatever effort is necessary in order to come to just biblical notions concerning these things. And if, if I might say so, um, part of what, part of what moved me to take this up in a sermon series is I, I do believe that the challenge is intensifying. Because when when I was young, I did have a sense from the Christians that I was around that denominationalism, that there was something wrong with it. You would almost in no quarter find any sort of wholehearted approval of the situation as it was. And so when I was young, you'll have to judge based on your own experience how things seem to you, but it seemed to me when I was young, growing up around the church, that the unity of the church was valued when the unity of the church or the fellowship of brethren was assaulted. There were lots of grim faces and shaking heads. And my sense when denominationalism came up, my sense from the Christians around me was that this is 
this situation is not good. Even if we couldn't quite figure out how to extricate ourselves from it, there was something wrong with it. I don't know. You will have to judge for yourself. But it seems to me that the unity of the church is as clouded as ever with respect to trying to understand it biblically. But now it's, it's waning as uh, a value among Christian people. Some, some Christians are, are giving up on unity as an unattainable ideal. Like, like it's a pie in the sky uh, notion that can never really have any practical uh, accomplishment. So, um, so in that sense, it's as an unattainable deal and ideal. It begins to be, you know, lose its power over men's minds and actions, as it were. There's also a growing cultural relativism that is having its impact on everyone, including Christians. In, in recent days, I, I feel like I have become, I've been coming into contact with more and more writing from Christians, from this relativistic perspective, even defending denominationalism, because at the end of the day, maybe it's best to have multiple perspectives on these issues. And maybe everybody's perspective has some. Legitimacy, and so whereas older generations of Christians might have spoke of unity and uniformity, um, there are some other words that are being used. Dare I say, with greater frequency uh, than in former times, but strange words like pluriformity. Maybe we have uh, unity sense that we're real sweet to each other, but um, you know, all these different, but there's a, there's a goodness in the plurality of things, too. It's good that there are multiple perspectives. Every denomination brings something important uh, to the table. I, I've even seen this attached in a peculiar way to worship issues and a, a shopper mentality. I, I had a young Christian actually say to me that they thought the great variety of denominations and churches was good because they all had different styles of worship. There's a lot of focus upon, upon the music. And so, you know, if you like this thing, there's something for you. And if somebody else likes another kind of worship music, well, then there is something for them. And so there are Lots of different ecclesiastical stores from which you might shop. And, you know, we, we like that when that comes to purchasing goods. Maybe it works for church as well. So there's the shopper mentality that appreciates that there are diverse, there's a diversity of vendors all out selling their wares, as it were. I, I have found this to be troubling. So again, when I was young, it seemed to me that at the very least, church unity was a value, even if no one was quite sure what it is or how to get there. Um, but it seems to be waning as a value among Christian people. And so it seems it seems seasonable, if for no other reason than that, to take up these issues. And so uh, this morning I wanted to just look at two doctrines, which I hope will be relatively easy, straightforward, and hopefully by the time we're finished together, we will have concurrence upon these things, and they become. foundational building blocks. We have, we have these truths, and perhaps we can build from these to 
others. So my first doctrine is, is a very simple, straightforward one. There is a dissonance between modern denominationalism and our acceptance of it and biblical teaching concerning the unity of the church. This doctrine is important really just for one reason. It identifies that we have a problem, a problem that we need to think about, and certainly a problem that is going to require some practical efforts. You will frequently hear it said, even out in general culture, that before you can really get help, you have to first identify that you have a problem. As, I, as I've mentioned, my sense in Western Christianity is that denominationalism is no longer being perceived as a problem. But uh, I think that the Bible reminds us that we do have a problem, a problem that needs to be addressed. So just right off of the uh, right off the face of things, this is what you would call a, a prima facie argument. Like it, at first glance, you can see this. At first glance, our denominationalism does not square with the teaching of the Bible, does it? So think about it. We look at our denominationalism, and then we read in Ephesians chapter 4. You might want to have it in front of you again. But we look at our denominationalism, and then we read, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering. Forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all is above all and through all and in you all. That is not easy to reconcile with denominationalism. Or again, we look at our denominationalism and then we read in verse 11, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Is it easy to reconcile our denominationalism with the unity of the faith in verse 13, or the idea of a body, verse 16, fitly joined and compacted together edifying itself in love. Again, we look out at our denominationalism and then we read verse 25, Wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. These 
denominationalism and Ephesians 4 are not easily reconciled. And you don't have to be um, a sophisticated theologian or logician to see the tension that exists just between this one text and what is what is happening around us. As a matter of fact, um, it would require, uh, you know, the the technic technical abilities and, if I might say so, gymnastics of the professional philosopher or theologian to try to reconcile. Ephesians 4 with what we see around us. Because in, in Ephesians 4, we see unity, unity treated as a reality in the first part of the passage, as something to be protected and kept with endeavors, with efforts. At the end of the chapter, we see it we see the unity of the church presupposed as a as a ground for other duties. We are members um, one of another. So hopefully this is sufficient to persuade you, even as I have been persuaded, that we have a problem. And then the second question becomes, well, how serious is the problem? In coming weeks, hopefully this will become clearer and clearer. But let me just say this at this point. To the extent that these biblical descriptions in Ephesians 4 and like passages seem glorifying to God and good for men, to the same extent you will esteem our divisions, say that again, to the extent that these biblical descriptions seem to magnify the glory of our God, to the extent that these descriptions seem good for men, to that very same extent you will esteem, esteem our divisions to be evils, and evils that must be removed because we value God's glory in the midst of his people, and we value the edification and the well-being of souls. In some ways, if you were to take nothing away from today's sermon than this, I might be well content as a preacher. This is really the one big takeaway. Something is wrong. And so we have some work to do. Uh, that, that work is going to have intellectual components. We're going to have to look at the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of church unity. But it's also going to have a, a practical component. We are going to have to do some things, as is already indicated here in Ephesians. We are going to have to endeavor some things to secure the unity of the church, and if I might say so, we're going to have to develop some personal and interpersonal skills to foster the unity of the church. So again, something is wrong. Something is really wrong. And we have work to do. My my second doctrine, I, I think, is, is equally plain. The root cause of division is sin, and every sin has the potential to divide. With this in mind, turn with me uh, back to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to be, begin reading in verse uh, 25. I want to um, just show you something linguistically. Uh, most of our reading is going to be in chapter 3. But there, there are some interesting things that happen in this. Um, it's a literary beauty 
this passage is, of course, about as theologically distressing as it can be, and yet there's some real literary beauty in the craftsmanship. So verse 25, And they were both naked. The Hebrew there is arumim. Arumim. Right? So, and it means, it means naked. The man and his wife. And were not ashamed. This is um, at least one component of, of the holiness and the harmony of the pre-flood or pre-fall world. They are they are um, holy, and so they are in harmony and altogether happy. They are in harmony with God. They are in harmony with one another and with everything else besides. Now we get into chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle. There, interestingly enough, the um, the lexeme for translated here subtle is aru. So do you hear the similarity? They were naked. There it's plural. That's the im ending arumim. Now the serpent was subtle. Aru. You You can hear the similarity. There are actually different roots behind the two words, but these are what are known as homonyms. You can see the play on words. It almost the words sound the same, but they actually have different meanings. So, having just read that they were naked and unashamed, you'd almost want to read that the serpent was naked. But of course, that doesn't make any sense. Certainly, in comparison with the other animals, they're all naked, right? So, you know that the other root has to be the one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. Now that word there, uh, naked again, erumim, um, but I want you to notice uh, something. Uh, the, the promise of the serpent, if you go back to verse 5, when you eat, then your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. But instead, in verse 7, what actually happens, they eat, verse 6, and their eyes were opened. And if you're a completely naive reader, you might think that it's going to go on to say that they were like Elohim, which is the word for God there. But instead, they were Erumim, which is the homonym for the way that the serpent was described. I, I do think that there's a, a beautiful literary wordplay. He had promised that their eyes would be opened and they God, but instead their eyes are opened. And they're like him. Subtle, crafty. But of course with that comes shame. So it, it's really at this point that we get to, to my principal object. Verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. 
Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Abraham and said unto Adam, and said unto him, Where art thou? These are some of the saddest words in history. Where art thou? You can imagine that uh, in the cool of the day, uh, when they heard the, the voice of the Lord God, perhaps the word of the Lord, even our Jesus walking in the cool of the day, presenting himself for fellowship, they hastened to him because all was harmony, all was happiness. But sin, we see sin's native tendency here rather than going to him they hide from him there's disruption in the relationship and you hear the question of God not not calling for information to be sure perhaps lamentation and then uh, you uh, further, you get a further display of the disruption of the relationship. Verse 10. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Right? So, sin and its guilt and the liability to punishment under which it stands brings fear and shame all of these things. Militate strongly against any sort of harmony in relationships. Verse 11. He said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me she gave me a tree, and I did eat. So here Adam is caught, but you see how he has become subtle like the serpent. Uh, rather than owning his own sin, discussing his sin as the federal head of all humanity instead, he says something that is factually true. The woman gave it to me and I ate. But it's blame shifting. So rather than rather than considering his his own sin and owning his own sin by re repentance, he blames his wife and even even God, because God had given him the woman. And the woman had given him the fruit. So, as Adam would reason, the woman might be to blame. Maybe even God might be to blame. But him, not so much. Verse 13. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled. I did eat. And so you see the blame shifting continues. So with the introduction of sin, you have the introduction of a principle. And that principle's native tendency is the destruction of relationships. And that's not the end of uh, this matter in this God does many things, many things in redemption, but since native tendency is always going to be that very thing, to alienate us from God and to alienate us from one another. And so continue with me at verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast in the field. 
upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Very interesting. Adam and Eve, by their sin, in a certain way, have entered into an alliance with the devil. Because it's founded in, in sin, it can never be a sure or lasting alliance. Uh, they will turn upon one another, even as you've already seen the woman turn upon the serpent, and not in a good way. But God is going to overrule this this principle, and he says that... He's going to put an enmity between Eve and her believing seed after her, and the serpent and his seed after him. Enmity is the language of hatred, hostility, opposition. And so there's going to be this great dividing line in humanity. And uh, there are those that are going to be walking in sin, unto destruction. There are those that are going to be believing upon the Lord for salvation and walking in holiness unto salvation. And there's the great dividing line between those. The, the hatred, properly speaking, is going to be running from the seed of the serpent toward the seed of the woman, as Genesis 4 makes plain. John, in First John chapter 3, interpreting that passage for us, says that Cain hates his brother and despises his works because his own deeds are evil and his brother's deeds are righteous. But you see how, how sin disrupts relationships. And there never really can be a reconciliation between one and the other. Those that those that will cleave to sin are going to be alienated from God. They're going to be uh, alienated from uh, the godly and ultimately even from uh, one another. It's sometimes said, you know, figures thieves. Thieves can come together on a, a particular project and say, we're going to join together to rob this other man but do you think that someone who would violently take away the goods of some innocent won't violently take away the goods of his fellow thief? And the answer is, if that becomes uh, advantageous to him in some way, he sure will. Sin provides the great principle of division. And then as the text goes on, look with me at verse 16. Just notice again the disruption in relationships. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. You don't have to de descend into the details of this passage to see that That because of sin, family relationships are going to be vexed. Before the fall, relationships between parents and children and spouses would have all been harmony, happiness, blessedness, and so on. But now, um, family life is going to have a blessing still in it, but it's going to be difficult. And what you find at the very beginning of the Bible, that never really lets up. We continue to see those dynamics play out. As you get toward the end of the Bible, you might think of this famous statement from James. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and ye have not. Ye kill and desire to have. And cannot obtain. Ye fight war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. 
So um, James just asks the questions, where, where does the strife among humans, the wars and the fighting come from? It comes from the lusts of our hearts. The root of the problem is our sins. And all it really takes is that that selfishness, I have set my heart upon this thing. Say so you set your heart upon that same thing. And yet we can't both have that thing. And so there is really nothing left for us but to fight over that thing. And the sins of the heart are not, are not handled. Um, so that first part uh, of the doctrine, I think, is comparatively easy. Sin is at the root of disrupted relationships. And so when we're looking to reconcile and to heal our relationships, it's good for us to um, trace it back to its root causes in sins and repent of those sins so that there might be restoration. The second part of the doctrine, I think, is maybe a little harder. It's not harder to understand, but it is harder for us to look at, I think. Every one of our sins has the potential to disrupt a relationship. Every one of our sins is a disruption in our comfortable walking with uh, with God. But I think that you'll see that in as much as the keeping of the law is love, and love is keeping the law, our sins are just so many failures in love. Uh, there's a lot of things that might be said about the biblical concept of love, but one facet that is inalienable, love has within it a sincere desire for the welfare of another. You can see this at the end of, of Romans chapter 13. That's why um, Paul can say, love worketh no ill. And then he begins to enumerate the, the commandments in the second table of the law. Love worketh no ill. Put positively, um, love works for the welfare of the beloved. But you see, every sin is a, is a failure of love. It is um, selfishness rather than that heart that is going out towards the welfare of another. And James, James shows it very clearly. When I'm allowed to continue in my own selfishness, when there's no when there's no dealing with this selfishness in the heart, and I set my affection on the thing, all that you really need is for somebody else to set their affection on that same thing, and we can't both have it. And so then uh, we fight. Now we are competing with one another, striving with one another, fighting with one another. disruption of, of relationships. That's something to think about. We're starting to see, I, I hope, at least another, another aspect of the great stakes that are involved in sins, even, even the small ones. We know um, that they disrupt our relationship with God, but sometimes we don't value that comfortable walking the way that we ought. But it, think about the, the troubles that you are having with other people. And now think seriously about your, about your own sins. And think soberly, how are my sins contributing to the disruption of this relationship? It is true, the sins of the other uh, might need to be dealt with in order to restore the relationship fully, but I think right away we begin to see we have work to do. We say very easily in our prayer, Lord, forgive us for our sins today in thought, word, and deed. Uh, but 
to think of every one of those sins as a spark that could very well ignite disruption in a relationship or a division in, in Christ's church. And we're starting to see, hopefully, becoming having a growing awareness of the destructive power of sin. Everyone just being a spark that's ready to ignite the flame of a division. So with respect to application, hopefully this will strengthen our our hands to pursue holiness because holiness is law-keeping and law-keeping is love. And if I'm looking out for your welfare and you're looking out for my welfare, we're, we're going to have harmony. We're going to have peace. We're going to have mutual edification. And when that holiness is present in its perfection in heaven, all, all of those sins that, that can disrupt relationships are gone. There's no more principle that can disrupt relationships. And if I, if I might make just one final observation, Taking my expression from the Song of Solomon, we need to beware of the little foxes. Those sins that we esteem to be small, perhaps less heinous, all things considered. But every one of them can spoil the vineyard, as it were. The only thing that restrains this native tendency in sin is, is God's grace um, and his His gracious, overruling providence. But the native tendency of every one of those sins is to, is to disrupt every relationship that it touches. That is, that is what they do. So uh, let us give ourselves again to the great business of growth in Christ Jesus and progressive sanctification to the end that we might cease to be disruptive instruments in the hands of the wicked one, destroying the peace and unity of the church. But, um, but to the positive end that we might be more useful instruments in the hands of the living God in fostering peace, concord, and unity in the midst of his people.